Matthew 24, 36 through 51. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Some manuscripts also have nor the sun. But my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know it until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man, or so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is faithful and a wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, we don't have an introduction this morning. Instead, what we're going to simply do is try to identify the time period that the Lord Jesus is addressing within this topic of the Olive Discourse. We know that the disciples have asked him, when will come the destruction of the temple and what will be the sign of the destruction? And they've correlated that to the very end of the age, the end of the age period they were in. The Jews at that time had two ideas of ages. They had the age they were presently in, and then they had the age of the Messiah, in which the Messiah would come and set up his kingdom and restore all things to Israel. And those were the two ages. And they put together this idea of the destruction of the temple, God laying waste to the world as they know it, and then in this hope of the Messiah coming and reestablishing the world as they had been promised and as they longed for. And so they've asked, when is going to be, and what is the sign of the destruction of the temple, and what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And obviously, with that, they're anticipating the coming of the messianic age and the Lord Jesus begins to answer those questions in this passage he's speaking of his coming at the end of the age he's speaking of that moment when he comes at the end of the tribulation period and before the establishment of his millennial kingdom and so that's what we're reading about that's the moment in time that we're reading about that the Lord Jesus is addressing to us and before us at this time If you've read this passage before, and I trust you have many times, you have possibly read verses 40 and 41, where you have two people in the field and one being taken away, and two people at a mill and one being taken away, and and then the others are left behind at the field and at the mill. And you've read those, and you've thought to yourself that these are depictions of the rapture. The idea that Christ is going to return and he's going to come to the skies and he's going to call the believers who are on the earth to come and gather and meet him in the skies and then he'll take them with him to be in his presence in heaven. And you, you can read about that in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. There is described that moment when those who have died in Christ will rise first and those who remain that are on the earth will rise up with them and they'll go to meet the Lord Jesus in the air at the call of Christ and at the sound of the trump and then it says and so will forever be with the Lord. And you read this passage where you see these individuals that are taken, taken from the field, taken from the mill and you think to yourself, well, that's what it's describing. That's describing that moment of the rapture when the Lord Jesus comes for his own and receives those who believe and trust in him unto himself. But I'm going to challenge that view here this morning. This passage doesn't address those things. The ones who are taking this passage are not the believers who are waiting for the Lord Jesus to come and take them off to heaven. Those who are taken away in this passage are those who are taken away into judgment. Verse 39 gives us the establishment. There are those who are compared to those who are living in the day of Noah And they're taken away by the floodwaters away into judgment. In fact, there's a parallel passage we could look at. It's in Luke chapter 17. You might want to turn there. In Luke chapter 17. And 
This is either a separate occasion when the Lord Jesus is basically speaking to and addressing the same topic, or this is a parallel account, and depending on who you read and what commentator you read, you'll get different views on that. But here, Luke is sharing with us the instruction that the Lord Jesus is giving at that time. And at that time, the Lord Jesus speaks of his coming like lightning coming across the sky, just like we read in Matthew chapter 24. And he compares his coming to what will take place as in the days of Noah, just like in Matthew chapter 24. There, Luke adds that he also says it's like what happened when he came upon Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot. And what we know in both of those cases is after the Lord came upon the land in Noah's day and after he came upon Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day, that Noah and Lot remained. They remained upon the earth and they remained to enter into a new age after that judgment fell, but everybody else was taken away. People were swept away in the flood. People were swept away by the fire. And At the end of that teaching in verses 34 and 36, the Lord Jesus says this. Let me read to you verses 34 and 36 of Luke chapter 17. Jesus says, I tell you, In that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. And two will be grinding together, and one will be taken, and the other left. And two will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. And now the disciples want to know where they're taken to. And so the disciples say in verse 37, they answer and said to him, Where, Lord? Where are they going to be taken? And so he said to them, Where the body is. There the vultures will be gathered together. Some of your translations say eagle. It's the same word. The same word that used for vultures was used for eagle. But the idea here is vultures will be gathered together. We saw this passage, this verse also referenced in Matthew 24. And we came to understand that it was a depiction of the catastrophic judgment that he would bring upon the earth at the end of the age. They're taken away into the domains of death. They're taken away into judgment So we begin here at looking at this passage by establishing the time that the Lord Jesus is prophesying about. He's speaking about that time at the end of the great tribulation when he will return to bring those who are in the world who have rejected him into final earthwide judgment. And this judgment will result in their destruction. And from that, those who remain upon the earth will go with the Lord Jesus into the messianic age, that age that was anticipated by the disciples, when they said, Lord, is this the time in which you restore the kingdom to Israel? It's the age that they was anticipated by the prophets. It's the age that was anticipated by the Jews at that time, and that age will commence. We're at that turning point. Christ will reign upon the earth with his elect, those he rescues out of this time of great tribulation. But the moment here that the Lord Jesus is speaking to is at the end of that great tribulation. It climaxes in this one final massive judgment that comes over all the earth. From this, we want to make a number of observations. So go back to Matthew chapter 24 on the passage that we read, and we're just going to make a series of observations, and we'll see how quickly we can do this. But the first observation we're going to make is this. There will be, at that time, at the end of the great tribulation, before this great judgment comes upon the earth, there will be enough evidence for people to anticipate the soon coming of Christ in judgment upon the earth. But... That evidence will go unheeded. There will be enough evidence to know that Christ is coming back to judge. When we read here that Jesus says the day and the hour of his coming is not known, that does not mean that the evidence of his soon coming is not been revealed or that his judgment and the evidence of his coming judgment is not being revealed. Think about the days of Noah during the ark. We understand that Noah was building that ark for about 100 years. During the time that he was building that ark, 2 Peter 2.5, Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher or a herald of righteousness. All that while, Noah is preaching to the people and declaring to them what God's demands are and what God is concerned about and what God is calling from them. And he's calling them to repentance, but they're ignoring the message. They're not hearing the message. This is coming at a time in the history of the world also in which the world is falling further and further into chaos because of the wickedness that's on the earth at that time. It became so chaotic that ultimately God said, I'm not going to put up with this any longer. Destroy all men from the face of the earth. And so it's not at a time, you might say, of peace and blessing, but of an ongoing, confused state of turmoil that's going on in the world all around. They can see it. The world and the civilization is beginning to fall apart and fracture, but they're still plowing ahead. And 
And also this strange phenomenon is going on. As Noah's building the ark and Noah is consistently proclaiming this message of righteousness, eventually animals start showing up around his ark. Two by two of every kind and all that takes place and all that is happening before the eyes of the people and yet they ignore and they reject the evidence that's coming out before them. They're not listening, they're not paying attention and well listen. This phrase that the Lord Jesus is speaking to and these things that the Lord Jesus are speaking to is also going to happen at the end of the age. Take again your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 8 and 9. Maybe I'll just reference it for you because we won't have to have time to look at this in depth. But in the same way that the signs are before the people in the time of Noah, the signs of Christ's coming and judgment are coming before the people at the end of the tribulation. You read the book of Revelation and no matter how you read it, whether you read it as one steady stream of chronology or whether you see it a recapitulation of a period of time that's being told to us over and over again, what you do see is this mounting judgment and these expressions of judgment that are building up in a concentrated period of time at the end of history. And in Revelation 8 and 9, you have examples of the kinds of things that are happening in this seven-year period of time. You have discussed in those two chapters six judgments that come upon the earth at that time. Four of them fall upon the land, and two of them fall upon human beings. First, you have a judgment of fire that comes upon a third of all the vegetation and destroys a third of the vegetation of the earth. Then you have a third of all the creatures of the ocean dying because the ocean becomes poisoned and they're destroyed. And then you have a third of all the fresh water that's available to the people on the world poisoned and made undrinkable. And then you have a third of the light, the the light that flows to earth from the heavens is diminished. The light that comes from the heavens is diminished by a third. And then you have the releasing of a demonic horde or infestation that will strike the human race with physical miseries for a period of five months. Then after this, John concludes that there will be a series of three plagues which will result in the death of one-third of the human population. See all that? A third, a third, a third, a third, a third of destruction going on in that period of time. And at the end of all those things, Revelation 9, 20 and 21 reads this. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. These events and more are described as you continue to read on in the book of Revelation of that place and that time period in the tribulation before Christ comes visibly and personally to judge upon the earth. This evidence, you would think, would alter the people and help them understand that some judgment is coming. Maybe each wave came by and they thought, well, maybe the worst is over. And then another wave came by that, well, maybe now the worst is over. And now, now the worst is over. We can start rebuilding. And they don't seem to understand that things are building up to a great judgment that's going to be outpoured upon him. The evidence is largely unheeded. But the evidence is there. The evidence is there. That's the first thing we want to see. The evidence was there that God was bringing judgment. It was mounting up for them. They could see it coming on the way towards them. Here's the second thing we want to, observation we want to make about this. We should never underestimate the capacity of sinful people to suppress the truth that God is revealing. We should never underestimate the capacity of us or human beings in their sins to suppress the truth that God is revealing. That's what Romans 1.18 says. It says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. In other words, even right now, even in the present hour, God is making known in different ways that he is unhappy with the choices people make to pursue their own unrighteousness and their own wickedness, and he's revealing that wrath from age to age, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Maybe you've heard something like this before. You know, if God was really real, why doesn't he prove himself to me? I would believe in if he would just give me the evidence. If I were alive during the time in which Christ walked upon the earth and I had seen what the other people had seen and I could see it happening myself, well, then maybe then I would believe. 
and I would receive and I would follow him, but I haven't seen anything like that. Heard statements like that or people intimate things like that before? The Gospels record the many astounding public miracles of the Lord Jesus. He openly is healing the sick, everyone who comes to him. He openly is casting out demons. He's openly giving sight to the blind and he's causing the lame to walk and he's restoring maimed hands and bodies and limbs. He's he's openly raising the dead. He's multiplying food for multitudes to feed them as they gather around to hear him teach. He's commanding the wind and the waves and all that are on the sea with him hear it and see it and recognize this great miracle. He's filling empty nets full of fish and on and on and on, you see these public expressions of the miraculous work of the Lord Jesus during his ministry. The Apostle John comes to the end of the life of the Lord Jesus, and the very last verse in his gospel, he tells us that all of the things that Christ had done up to that point in time, and everything that's listed, and everything that he's told us is just a small portion of all that he did, of all the miraculous things he did. Here's what it says in verse 25 of John 21. John writes this, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus had a very public ministry at his first coming. And yet in the time of this miraculous ministry and all that he was doing, the great majority of people refused to believe in him. They wouldn't give God glory for the miracles he performed. In fact, their leaders said that he was doing it by the power of Satan. And the people kept coming to him and asking him to do more and more. Give us another sign. Give us another sign. And they weren't asking for the sign in order that they might believe. They were asking for another sign in order that they might postpone belief. They didn't want to believe. They wanted to stave it off. Show us something else. Show us something more. His miracles didn't convince them or change them. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, we're told that after he did that, that the leaders began to plot how they could kill Jesus. After he raised Lazarus from the dead, and how they could kill Lazarus. It didn't convince them. Don't underestimate a person's ability in unbelief and unrighteousness to suppress the truth that comes before them. And and this suppression may not even be a denial of what they're seeing and what it means. It could just be an expression of delay on their part from surrendering up to that truth of what they're seeing and what it means. They put off the required surrender of their lives to this one and what his life means and demands of them, putting it off for further consideration as they hold on to the life that they want to leave and the control that they want to maintain over their lives. So Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1 to tell us the reason for this suppression of truth or for this lack from this And it's not, he says, from a lack of evidence. It's clearly plain. It's plain. They can see it for themselves in all of God's creation that God is there and that God exists. It's because they don't wish to glorify God. It's because they're not thankful and they don't want to yield to him and worship him as the source of being and life. And It's the resistance to put God at the center of their life, which is what we do when we worship. That's why they suppress it. Here's a third thing that we want to see here and observe. First thing is, there's going to be plenty of evidence that the judgment is coming. The second thing, they're going to suppress that evidence because man has a tremendous capacity of suppressing what they don't want to have impeding upon them in their own choices, and their own decisions, and their own self-willed ways. The third thing is that while suppressing this mounting evidence and delaying their surrender to the truth that's being unfolded before them, while this is all happening at the end of the age, there will be a worldwide pursuit for normality. And with it, a pressing into all the regular conventions of social life. It's kind of amazing that at the end of the incredible hardships of the tribulation, to think that human beings will still be striving after normalcy and striving to prove themselves capable of maintaining the ongoing customs of life, just getting back onto the script, back onto the page. They did the same thing in Noah's day. In the face of Noah's preaching, in the face of his ongoing calls for the people to repent, as the ark is taking shape before them, as the animals are gathering around the ark, the people in the middle of all the wickedness that is mounting up around them, the people are ignoring all these things. They're ignoring the havoc that's all around them and they're determined instead with peptic optimism that everything's going to work out. They're still giving and taking in marriage. They're still carrying on the customs of life. 
just trying to keep on, if everything is normal. Maybe I could venture here into a little psychology. This will not be entirely accurate, I'm sure. We have a notion that's called codependency. It was developed in the 1950s. It was kind of an explanation of why it was that families got in cycles of addiction and they just went from one generation to the next generation. But in essence, the idea was that there were these complementing dysfunctions that different individuals had. They had needs in their life that they wanted to have service from the other individual. And the payoff was if, if I'll meet your needs, you meet my needs. And in this reciprocal relationship of dysfunction, they would feed one another's broken lives and their broken needs. And in the result, their lives would just descend down into further and dwindle down into further and further patterns of dysfunction. And they would blithely descend in this agreement they made with one another into a kind of oblivion in their lives. Instead of saying things like, you know, our, our home is a mess and we need intervention and we need change. As long as I make you feel needed and as long as you feed my addiction, let's hang together. Let's be together. And there is, in a sense, a picture here of this kind of fallen relationship where instead of feeding one another and benefiting one another and raising one another up, you find individuals who meet you in your lowest point and your most failed places in your life and they help you sustain those things as long as you help them sustain the same things in their life by feeding the sense of need that they have in their life. It's, I'll be your Bonnie, you be my Clyde, and we'll just kind of work together at robbing one another of a future and a blessing. And in the days of Noah, let's call this codependency, I'm getting a broadening it out from the idea, the psychological idea, but in the days of Noah, this was an epidemic problem. People were simply servicing their flaws and their errors and their sin and helping each other go along, painting the world for one another. If everything is okay, well, nothing was okay. And it's something that goes on as a pattern in people's lives from day to day in the world in which we live in. It will be epidemic again in the last days. It will be epidemic again in the last days. People believing or telling one another's lies to one another and pretending to believe the other person's lies just as long as they pretend to believe your lies. The state of dysfunction that will take place in that hour. Revelation 18 records the collapse of the economic structure that holds up the nations during the tribulation period. I want to read you an extensive part of that, so take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 18. At the end of the tribulation, just as everything is tipping into this final judgment, we're told that the economic structure that holds the world together all through this period and unites it all together will finally come and suddenly come to a great collapse in one hour, it says over and over again. Revelation 18, 9 through 19, I want to read it to you. But I want you to see as we're reading this is that the course of the economy has still been feeding people, just ordering and buying and purchasing and trying to live as though everything's normal in the middle of the tribulation. This is going on because now we're coming to the end. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Her is a picture of this economic center of life, which is called Babylon, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, so precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, and every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, and cattle and sheep and horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you'll find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster who traveled by the ship and sailors and many as trade on the sea stood at a distance 
and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. So you have this, what we call this, contributing dysfunction. You have individuals who are just happy to buy the wealth that these men are bringing to them, and they're gaining wealth of it, and as long as everybody is getting their satisfaction and getting things to adorn their lives with, in the middle of all of the darkness of the tribulation, in the middle of the torment and the, and the wretchedness that we read about in Revelation 8 and 9, all of it's covered over by this ongoing produce that's being delivered and this consumption of these things. And if we can just keep consuming these things, we'll be satisfied and all will be well. And such is going on in this period of great denial of the realities around them. Look at verses 21 and 24. Chapter 18 there. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists and musicians and flutists and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints. And all who were slain on the earth. Now, I believe what's being described here is something that has gone on and is going on throughout the ages. But it's intensifying. It's not diminishing. It's intensifying up until the very end. These patterns don't come to an end. And even in the midst of judgment... People pay down double on them and triple on them. It's their way of numbing themselves from the reality that's before them. Note, they're making music at the very end. They're making their art at the very end. They're baking their bread bread for the next day at the very end. They're giving and taking in marriage at the very end. Let's not address the problems around us. Let's numb ourselves by keeping everything going as it is. It's as if they're sailing on a doomed ship past one iceberg after another, and no one is manning the lifeboats at the end. In Luke 21, 36, Jesus gives this word of advice. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. But it's just here that the Lord Jesus is letting us know that very few will seek an escape from what is looming before them. Why? Well, in part, it's the uncertainty of the hour of Christ's coming. It doesn't move them to prepare. Instead, it moves them to postpone. We don't know when he's going to come. We don't know when he's going to show up. It'll be tomorrow. It'll be the day after that. And so, instead of seeing what's taking place and being stirred to prepare for that coming, they postpone it and they delay. and They pursue their own lives. They pursue their own satisfaction. An example of this, we could give you many examples of this, but let me share you an example that was relayed to me many years ago. Many of you know that our ministry supports Ernest Dung and his ministry in Cambodia. And God has used Ernest in tremendous ways, is still using him in tremendous ways to impact the government of Cambodia and to be an advocate for the Christian faith in Cambodia. When I first met Ernest, we were sharing a hotel room together. And uh, I was speaking at a conference. The hotel was filled up. In the middle of the night, he was the last person to arrive. They came and said, we've run out of rooms. Would you be willing to have this gentleman come stay in your room? And All right, so Ernest came and shared the room with me, and we began talking with one another, and I began to ask him a number of questions, and he began to share with me the story of his life. He grew up in a very wealthy family. His father was the chief general to the king of Cambodia, King Sionic of Cambodia. He lived in a house in which there was a helicopter pad on their home, and his father would commute by helicopter to where he worked. He was about ready to graduate from high school. His father came and showed him different cars that he could buy and promised that he could get a Jaguar if he wanted a Jaguar for his high school graduation. I mean, young man was spoiled. He, he lived in a home where the servants would wait upon each child and would sit at the floor of each child. There were eight brothers and sisters when they ate their food to tend to all their needs. Anyhow, well, the time came in which the Khmer Rouge, the red army of the Khmer people, the Cambodian people, were coming in upon the city of Phnom Penh, and they were 
throwing down and casting down what was a flagging government of the Lenol regime. And little by little, they were wiping out the villages around them as they were making greater and greater encroachment upon the city. And there were bombings that were going on all through that area. And as they were coming closer and closer, the population was flooding into Phnom Penh, the city of Phnom Penh. So the city, which is, which is a city of not a million people, had about two million people in it by the end, as all these people were crowding into the city. And they knew that Phnom Penh was going to fall at that time. And Ernest's father had told his mother to do everything she could to get the family out of the country. And so they had gone and purchased tickets to fly to Paris, France, to escape. And they'd arranged to have all the children have their passports. And then at the last moment, the mother decided to go back and renew her tickets for one week later than what she had originally purchased them for because she wanted to celebrate a birthday party with her mother before they left. And in that one week, the Khmer Rouge took over Phnom Penh. And they evacuated the city. And as they were marching out, among other things, they recognized Ernest's uncle, who was the minister of agriculture of the Nol regime, and they executed him on the streets before their family's eyes. And they marched them out throughout the city, and Ernest saw the destruction and the people who had died all around them. And Ernest was forced into the killing fields, and he did it. Before they all departed from one another, as they got out of the city, the mother gathered them all together and they were all weeping and the mother made a little fire and they burned their passports and their plane tickets in the fire before they submerged themselves into that great catastrophe and went through it. And when Ernest was able to go back and visit his family members periodically during the killing fields, he was able to make his way back. He simply went back to dig graves and bury each and every one of them as they died. Could have escaped, could have seen the warnings, could have run, could have fled. But just one more week of normalcy, one more week of postponing so that we might just anesthetize ourselves from the realities we're facing by a little bit of laughter, a little bit of joy. And what do we do in situations like this? What's supposed to take place? If you could look on and know what was going to happen in the week coming and you could see it, you would have been crying out to them, run, run, run. To flee from the city like Lot fled from his city. To get into the ark like Noah went into the ark with his family. You're to flee to the Lord Jesus and not look back. You're to put your life in him like a ship that will carry you over the seas of destruction and desolation. You just see one who's provided himself as an answer for all your needs in the way of escape from the wrath of God against sin. And these events at the end of the age are not a strange anomaly, by the way. They are instead life as it has almost been all along. Isaac Watts wrote this line in the late 1600s. Dangers stand thick through all the around to push us to the tomb and fierce diseases wait around to hurry mortals home. Infinite joy or endless woe attends on every breath, and yet how unconcerned we go upon the brink of death. Considering these last three points, we have to marvel that salvation found us through Jesus Christ at all. We have to marvel at the great saving work of God, and the first thing that he had to do was break down our stubborn resistance to him and overcome our propensity towards just going on and burying our heads and not hearing and not listening and not answering him because we want our own way. And somehow God, by his grace, reached us and we can sing. "Twas grace that taught our hearts to fear. "Twas grace that taught our hearts to fear. And grace our fears relieved. In all this, God has a word for us. God has an application. Christ has an application for us. And I want to repeat something that we learned last week in our last sermon. Jesus deploys the pronouns you when addressing his disciples on this topic. In Matthew 24, he's speaking to Peter, James, and John. And he's speaking of all these things that come upon the world at the end of the age. And yet when he speaks about it, he's willing to cast them into that hour, into that moment. It's because he says, you, you, you. In verse 42, he tells them an application which is to be watchful, to be alert. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour when your Lord is coming. And then in verses 44, he tells them another application which is to be ready or to be prepared. He says in verse 44, therefore you 
also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect it. And then in verses 45 to 47, he gives them another application, which is that they're to be faithful to him, constantly true to him. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in their due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find doing so. Assuredly, I say to you, they don't make him ruler over all his goods. God was speaking to, Christ was speaking to Peter, James, and John, and as he spoke to them, he was willing to take these three individuals and cast their minds imaginatively into that very moment and that very age. And, and the Lord Jesus knew that they were going to be experiencing great destruction, and they were going to be in the midst of spasms of these kinds of events throughout their lives. And it was okay, it was right for them to think that they lived in that moment in which the end of the age had come. And this is the kind of response he's asking from them. At the same time, the Lord Jesus says you because he's looking past Peter, James, and John because he cares for us and he cares for people down through the history of the ages and he's speaking to those who will be at the very end of the tribulation and they'll have access to this book and they'll read it and they'll read these words and they'll read the you there and they'll know it's them that Christ was speaking to and they'll know it's a word for them in the middle of all the catastrophe and all the dangers that are around them. They're being warned to be alert so that they're not deceived. They're being warned to be attentive to the hand of God and the judgment that's taking place. They're being told to prepare themselves because at any moment Christ was going to return to make sure that they were in the boat with him, that they were relying on him, that they were living under his blood, that they were accepting and professing the gospel as their only hope. And they're being called upon to be faithful and constantly true in their service of him and in their walk of holiness even as the hour becomes more and more destructive, and even as the world is dwindling and moving faster and faster into judgment, they're to know that Christ the judge is at the door, and, and Christ is speaking to us as well. We have this same injunction laid upon us. We're to live being alert. We're to be prepared. We're to be faithful. The gospel says that Jesus Christ has come and died in the place for our sins, that he's borne our judgment, that he's risen to be our salvation, that we are safe from wrath if we come by faith to rest in him alone. The gospel delivers us from the captivity of sin. It delivers us to live for God and live in the freedom that God gives us, serving him and obeying him and following him. And my life is now to be set in my security in him alone. And is there ever a time when I can live without my eyes on Jesus? When I can withdraw my hope of salvation from him and place it in anything else, I must be alert to a heart that wanders from the gospel. I must be alert from a heart that would somehow trust in whatever I've perfected in my religious performance and whatever I have designed as the place that assures me in myself and my activities and how good I am that I'm good or from a mind that somehow says there's just going to be, you know, love is going to win And everybody's going to be safe and everything's going to be good in the end so I'll just enjoy myself. I must always be alert from a heart that wanders from the gospel, wanders away from Christ. And having begun my life by trusting in the saving life of Jesus given in my place, is there ever a time in my life where I could be found trusting in something other than him? and not leaning upon him and resting upon him and residing in him from moment to moment. I must always live prepared, always live answering the challenges of life, undering the covering of his shed blood for my sins, always covering myself with his righteousness, covering up the nakedness of my own deceitful and sinful heart with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My preparation in this world is to daily clothe myself in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, is to live my life as him being my only source and my only strength against the destructive forces of evil that rise up in my age. I need to walk with him all the time as my provision, as my protection, as my promise. And he'll bring me to the end of the journey safe and sound. I must be prepared in this way to meet the challenges that come upon me every single day. And now saved by Christ, Now saved by Christ, should I live against him? Now saved by his faithfulness to come and take all my sins upon himself, should I turn against him anyway? 
or must I be faithful? I must be faithful. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. If I choose to live in any moment as if Jesus did not matter or count in my considerations, it would be sin. It would be a faithless act. We are to live as though the judge would be before us at any moment and we would be be before the judge. We are to live so that we might meet him as one we're claiming as Savior and Lord at every moment of our lives. These parables bring great warning. I want you to see at the end of the parables, the warning is that those who do not heed them and heed these warnings will be destroyed with all the hypocrites. But here's the wonderful truth. The hypocrite will hear and read what is spoken here in this passage and they'll go on playing the part. But the true child of God will read these warnings and will say, Oh God, don't let that ever be said of me. Oh God, may I be true to you. When we were raising our children up, we uh, had a, a way of wanting to communicate to them. We wanted them to know about the salvation that God gave. We wanted them to give their lives to Christ. We didn't press it upon our kids when they were too young. We didn't want them to make a decision from our own authority or by us pressuring them. In fact, when our children were little, we actually would say, well, when you're a little older, we'll explain this to you if they started asking us about spiritual things and particularly about how they could be saved. Well, at, at some point in time, we'll share it with you, but we just didn't want to bear that kind of influence upon We knew we could see the Spirit of God was at work in their hearts and their lives, and we trusted that God would keep them until that moment when it was time for them to make a decision. As they got older, it kind of changed. We all of a sudden, the conversation changed. Listen, if you're going to pretend or claim to be a Christian, you better make sure that you've done business with God, that you've turned your life over to Lord Jesus, that you've surrendered Him, you've received Him as your Savior, that you're trusting as your only hope. You're, you're not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You're only saved if you get into the boat, if you trust in Jesus as your salvation, if you, you turn from your sin and you received him. But some of our children, though, did find other people to go and talk to. Uh, we didn't give them a satisfactory answer, so they'd go ask somebody else in the church. One of them was a, our, our son, John Barry. And so when John Barry was about three or four years old, we, we actually heard him praying a little prayer. Oh, God. Clean out my dirty, dirty heart. I remember hearing the prayer. My wife and I were praying because he kept asking us questions and we, we didn't know what to do. Lord, we don't know what to say to this little boy. He keeps pestering us about this and we're, we're trying to be wise. And the house was quiet at that time and we, we began to think, uh-oh, something's wrong. He's probably making a mess somewhere. So we tried to find out what he's doing and we found him kneeling by the couch and we heard those words. Clean out my dirty, dirty heart and come into my heart and make me new. And Well, we kind of stepped back, tears in our eyes, but... You know, we never really told him. We never said anything to him. I did let him overhear me throughout the time that he was growing up, speaking to my friends on the phone or talking to people that are in our homes, that were visiting us in our homes. I would say something like this. Well, you know, when John Barry was a little boy, three or four years old, he, he made a profession to give his life to the Lord Jesus. And well, who knows whether little children are just playing games? Who knows whether little children are sincere, sincere or not? I know they just want to follow and be like us. If they've been sincere... It'll prove itself over his life. It'll demonstrate in it in his love for God and his desire to please him and serve him. And he'll grow if it was true and if it was real. And I wanted to hear me say those words. If he was just going along with the play, he'd just go along with the play. But if it had been genuine and of God, I know what the Spirit of God would stir up within him. I want to prove my life in my love for the Lord Jesus. I want to prove what God did in my life by my faithfulness to him. I want to grow in the things that he's revealed to me. I want to grow more and more in my faith. That's what I wanted him to answer. That's what I wanted him to hear. That's what I wanted this. I wanted to give it as an opportunity for the spirit to stir up that kind of response in him. Now listen, a stern message like this can only do two things. I'm going to bank on the game I've been playing. I'll just be a good uniform Christian so I can impress people and I'll, I'll prove that I'm all right. Or, oh God, I want to be faithful to you to the end. Even if you're bringing judgment around all of us, I want to hold on to you, securing you to the end. Oh Jesus, may I faithful be. Give me the power. Give me the power. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. That's the grace of God teaching your heart to fear. And the grace of God, your fears were leaving. Let's bow our heads.
We do not have to live in fear of that day, O oh God. It doesn't have to fill us with consternation. Oh, when we see evidence of the day breaking, it surprises us. And for a moment, there's a flash of concern. All the things we hold dear and that we've held on to and we've been so comfortable with, the threat that it might be taken away from us. But then, we who know you, do the inventory. And we say, take the world, but give it me Jesus. You're all we want. It's your life, your salvation. We thank you, O God, for the days of judgment when you start shaking the foundations beneath us. You show us where we've treaded out and we've laid out some portion of our lives in the wrong place. Shake it away. We might draw into the sure foundation of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has prevailed on our behalf and is coming to receive us to himself and to bring us into his unending kingdom. We give you glory for that. Dear God, as the world finds themselves either blinded by the lies they tell themselves or as they answer the anxiety they feel, feel and as it comes upon them with, with just temporary solutions, whistling past the graveyard, for us, dear God, may we stand out markedly as those exuding a deep, profound assurance because our rest is in the eternal rock, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the righteousness that we have through him alone. For those, dear God, that know, know, they're just delaying. May this hour bring an end to the delay. May the Spirit come upon them and say, these days are ahead, but my salvation is for you now. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's stand together. Let's sing this song to one another. Let's sing it out over those that we long for and love, softly and tenderly. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling Calling for you and for me See on the portals He's waiting and watching Watching for you and for me Come home, come home, you are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come Should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? Come home. Come home, you are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Let's keep singing it over those we care for and love. Time is now fleeting, the moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Come home. Come home, you 
are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O oh sinner, come home. Oh, what a wonderful love He has promised. Promise for you and for me. Though we have sinned, He has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home. You are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Heavenly Father, we bring before you those we care for and love, family members, friends, neighbors, Dear God, may we live our lives, priorities set straight. Yes, Lord, we want to be faithful to you in every area of our lives. You've called us to occupy until you come. And so, God, in our places of business and in our neighborhoods and where we take our children to school and interact with those around us, may we be faithfully occupying that space, but with our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, watching ever for you, resting in you, prepared, clothed in your life, not wasting the hour, but seeking to be faithful in all things, doing all things in your name and for your glory. God, for your sake and for your honor, for our blessing, for their good, as a witness to them, the life that can be theirs. For those, dear God, who hear this word and are uncertain of their standing and their state, if pressed away and delayed, dear God, may they know now, may they feel and sense the hour is upon us. And to call us to us in this hour to turn and yield fully into you. We pray for all those that have had the experience of the Christian life, Lord, and in it they've heard it until it's just common knowledge. Now they're delaying. Dear God, wake them up, we ask, by your Spirit. In Jesus' precious name, amen.